It's the beginning of 2019, so where are we going in the music industry? What trends should we be keeping an eye on? Welcome to The Future of What. I'm your host, Portia Sabin, president of the independent record label, Kill Rockstars. Support for The Future of What comes from Merch Table. With over 15 years of experience in merchandising, screen printing, tour support, and online fulfillment, Merch Table partners with artists and labels looking to jumpstart their business. Visit merchtable.com to learn more and open a store today. On today's episode, we talk about tech and the music business, EPs and singles versus LPs, and more. It's all coming up on the future of what? Support for the future of what comes from Sound Exchange. You're listening to the future of what. I'm talking to Sherry Hu. Sherry, welcome back to the future of what. Thank you. Glad to be back. All right. So it's still early ish 2019. So I wanted to hit you up about trends in the music business. I know that you have written a whole bunch about the various things that you're seeing going on in the business from a lot of perspectives. I read your tweet that's like 20 of your favorite trends that you already wrote about. Oh, yes. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) That was from end of last year. Yeah, Yeah, that's a lot of stuff. (laughs) Yeah, but there's a lot going on. I mean, I feel like that's the kind of exciting thing right now is is there is really a lot going on. For sure, yeah. And even thinking about things that I didn't really cover in that thread that have happened already in 2019. So, first of all, I, I think one of the articles I posted in that thread was about the intersection of music and gaming. And what's so fascinating to me is that you now have games like Fortnite holding virtual concerts, like Marshmallow, the EDM DJ just performed a concert to like 10 million people virtually within Fortnite. And Fortnite has sort of lived a very long and, and surprisingly sustainable life cycle within the music industry, starting from when Drake was on a stream with Ninja, who's a really popular Twitch streamer. And that was early last year. And now that's sort of culminated in bringing artists into the game engine itself and putting on these, these virtual shows and virtual concerts. That phenomenon has been something that the music industry has been toying with for a really long time. And I guess in its most basic form, it can be in the form of like a Coachella live stream. But even that is just a live stream of a real life experience that you're missing and that some people are there in person to experience and others are not. Whereas things like Fortnite, there's no distinction at all. And I think that's one overarching theme that touches upon a lot of trends we're seeing in music is we're now dealing with younger generations of music fans, and entertainment fans that never really thought about a pre-digital and post-digital music consumption experience, or they don't really see digital being separate from real life and from real concrete, tangible experience. So I just found that really fascinating. It is fascinating. I think what comes into my mind as I look at all of these trends that you're talking about is how are artists supposed to make money these days? Because I feel like all of the the sort of intersection of music and tech, it seems to keep happening in ways that make how artists can make money sort of slide farther and farther out of reach. I mean, that's at least my take on it. Yeah, part of it is these sources of income going out of reach because a lot of these newer income streams aren't quite accessible in in the sense of 
anyone being able to start a Twitch channel and like everyone being able to start a live streaming part of their business, like for thinking from an artist's perspective. But yeah, I think the part that is really concerning, understandably from the artist's perspective, is whether the rise of these income streams shifts value further and further away from the actual music itself. And there was actually an article that was just published on Pitchfork last night about TikTok, which is not really a new company, but it's definitely increasing in value. And its parent company, ByteDance, is reportedly worth around three times as much as Spotify right now. And so it's a really big mobile-centric tech company based out of China. And this is a problem that you see time and time again with these kinds of short-form video apps and that the artist involved or the artist whose music is being featured on those platforms, unless you're involved with one of the major labels that owns a distribution company that has a deal with TikTok, which is few and far between, you're not really getting revenue from the viral exposure that you're getting on these platforms. And this is a problem that people saw with Vine, with companies like Dubsmash, with Musical.ly, which is now under TikTok and kind of rebranded. But yeah, I think it's kind of an old problem that will definitely take on new forms this year in terms of one, artists feel an increasing amount of pressure to direct their attention away from their music and more towards branding and marketing and not really monetizing the record in and of itself. And then even as they do that, the way that these companies are structured, they're not really delivering that value back to those artists anyway. So yeah, there definitely is a conflict there. Right. I mean, I think TikTok's a great example because, you know, I'm not involved in a license. And yet when I search for my artists on TikTok, there's just tons of stuff that's been posted and tons of the music is being used. So obviously we're not getting paid for any of those usages. I feel like this is the heart of the argument between tech and the music industry. I mean, it's the YouTube argument all over again. People are being infinitely creative with their user-generated content that they make, but in the course of it, they use other people's copyrighted material without permission. And so I feel like there's this constant push and pull between, you know, what are we going to do? Because the people who argue, who, I mean, obviously are funded by Google largely, a lot of the time, and some people are, you know, genuinely, theoretically believe this, you know, that we don't want to diminish other people's creative abilities. But it's like, you have to, to some extent, pay for the content of the first person's artistic. You know what I mean? It's like, no one's going to make music if they can't make money from making music. And if you make music, and then it just gets used by other people to create content that you can't profit from, that's a real problem. Yeah, there is definitely a legal issue. So it's, it's technological, it's legal, it definitely is political and social just in terms of the incentives that these various companies that have so much power in the music industry have or don't have to bring these changes forward. But just thinking about how the Music Modernization Act, which is one of the biggest milestones for the industry of the last year, it took so long for that to be passed, even though streaming services had already been around and had already really transformed the industry for over a decade up until that point. And yeah, I, I think a lot of these can be boiled down to legal challenges, like what counts as fair use. There are some concrete parameters around that, but it's still a very open debate. Like, you know, like is a 15 second snippet on TikTok fair use? Some people would argue that it's not and would demand their money. And also thinking about one of the biggest trends that wasn't really a trend last year was blockchain, which has been around in the music industry for in terms of people trying to build companies around it for, for several years now. But that's where a lot of people see something like blockchain coming in and really providing value and being able to recognize content and then 
transact on these much smaller snippets of content at much larger scale in a much more transparent manner. And I think that's why, even though there haven't really been any concrete implementations of that technology, that's why that technology is also still appealing. I don't want to go down the blockchain rabbit hole because it's it's a big one. Mm -hmm. But my understanding of how blockchain works is that actually, I've always been real skeptical about blockchain for the simple reason that, you know, I run a record label and part of my job is to send emails to people who've been on the label and, you know, are currently on the label. That's easy. People who have, you know, were on the label 27 years ago, well, that starts to get harder because people do things like forget to update their email address with you or forget to update their mailing address. Mm -hmm. And to me, blockchain, it's like data is only as good as the people who are supposed to be updating it. So mm-hmm. it's like, yeah, that's great. If everyone really is on top of updating their their information, then yeah, that's a system that could work. But I've seen firsthand how hard it is. I mean, I forget to do it myself, you know, mm-hmm. move and, and forget to tell somebody and then, you know, find out six months later if someone's like, oh my God, I've been trying to get a hold of you all this time. So, you know, it's just, I feel like it's funny that it's such a big technology focused thing when in fact it really relies more almost than anything else on human input and i feel like the the potential for human error is so great <laughs> that it's funny to me exactly i have trouble yeah. imagining it really working that well yeah yeah and I, you're definitely not alone in that at all and <laughs> it's quite amusing to me that i'm hearing the phrase more and more blockchain inspired rather than <laughs> just being a blockchain company. Right. I think that yeah, the first time that I talked to STEM, the distribution company, they were using the term blockchain inspired. And I've also talked to a couple other startups who wanted to do something around blockchain, but then quickly pivoted away from that, but were really inspired by, I, I think people are inspired by the conversations that have come about as a result of this. Like, like people in trying to imagine what a blockchain music company would be like, speaking now more openly about these problems. Yeah. Whereas I feel like previously it wasn't the case, right? And then, yeah, I think I think a really smart and healthy response to this is saying, yeah, blockchain is not a solution for all of the industry's problems, but there, and there are other ways that we can solve these issues that we've been having for a really long time in ways that don't cost as much or don't require as much development. Yeah. So let's touch briefly on one of the big stories from last year that seems to me to also be like a, a theme throughout the music business right now, which is the hiring by Spotify of Don Ostroff from Condé Nast. Mm. To me, that sent a real signal to the industry. You know, Spotify, which calls itself very publicly a music company, hiring someone not from the music center to run the company. You talk a whole bunch about sort of the intersection of media and music these days. So do you want to just touch on that a little? Definitely, yeah. And thinking about recent news, I think we see one of the biggest examples of why it's no longer a music company and the fact that it just acquired one of the world's biggest or most valuable podcast production companies, Gimlet Media, and one of the biggest podcast distribution and hosting companies, Anchor. And now that's all housed under the same company of Spotify, which talking with labels and with artists about how they understand the platform and how they're navigating it, they definitely still think of Spotify as a music company or they're thinking about playlist placement and they're thinking about discover weekly whereas now that there's so much more content now on spotify that it just does not touch that world at all and, and i think this will be a challenge that will be amazing if they want to pull it off of how to integrate the podcasting and audio world with the music world like from from a discovery perspective i think that's 
that really hasn't been solved yet in terms of how people discover and recommend podcasts effectively. I know Spotify and Pandora are, are both working on that. Then also like what happens when both podcasts and songs and tracks from artists, what happens when both of those appear in the same playlist and they're algorithmically recommended? I think that that completely changes the way that artists and labels need to think about their strategy on platforms like Spotify. And I think the, the fact that Spotify is expanding beyond just music. So there are definitely financial incentives for Spotify's part, just because they have not really made a profit with, with the exception of this most recent quarter, Q4 2018, they never really made a profit off of just music alone. And so there definitely is an incentive to diversify, especially now that they're a public company. But then from the artist and label side, I think it is also a healthy conversation and healthy realization that maybe it's not the best idea to put all our eggs into Spotify's basket, which I feel like a lot of independent artists are pressured to do, just given the sheer scale of Spotify and the fact that there is a pretty like you know well laid out regimented system for like you have to get this many streams to appear on on these kinds of playlists and all that. But yeah, so I think that'll be one of the most interesting threads to follow in 2019, I think, is seeing to what extent Spotify can pivot out of a really solid and robust brand up to this point as a music company, because it's tried to do that with video content over the last couple of years and has kind of failed with that. Basically, all of its original video series have been shut down. So whether it can do that, and then two, what it means for artists and labels who traditionally saw Spotify and saw paid streaming at large as their saving grace. A lot of people over the last year or two, I've heard express the fear that labels were going to treat like companies like Spotify as the new CD. And, and what they're meaning by that is saying that they're going to put all their eggs into yeah, like the paid streaming subscription basket. Say, oh, there probably isn't going to be anything coming after this innovation. That's basically how they treated CDs. It brought them to a quote-unquote golden age, which then did not prepare them for Napster, for streaming, P2P, file sharing, everything in the early 21st century. And so I think there, there's going to be a significant mindset shift in that sense as well of labels being like, oh, maybe Spotify isn't going to be our closest ally and we should look elsewhere for what's coming next. Yeah, I mean, that's. I think that's always good sense. I think it's always hard in a marketplace for people to make a shift quickly. I think independent labels as a as a rule have had a little bit more success with that just because we're, we tend to be smaller. Mm-hmm. So we can pivot a little bit more quickly. But yeah, it is hard, especially when... As you say, as you said earlier in this interview, artists are being sort of forced by the marketplace to look at themselves more as a brand and a media experience rather than just people who make music and then put that music out in a specific way. I think we are making that shift. And I think once, you know, artists and labels have made that shift, it's hard to, for them to shift again. So it, it's it's a difficult situation, but that's I think that's the way it's always been with tech. I mean, apparently, you know, people thought there would never be anything but radio, mm-hmm. you know, and so when television came online, they were like, no one's going to adopt this stupid format. Ha ha ha. <laughs> I mean, that's the story. So do you have anything that you would like to just sort of wrap up? Like what's the most interesting trend you think for the music business moving forward in 2019? Yeah. So one thing that I've been thinking a lot about generally is the role of artificial intelligence in the creative process. So at this point, I think in music, it is much more of an interesting philosophical problem than like an actual concrete problem that is threatening to an artist or a label. But if you look beyond music, 
I'm personally a little bit terrified just by the rise of deep fakes and, and by the ability of, of a third party to create a really convincing avatar from scratch of like a real public figure and to convince people that that is really, you know, that, that is really Barack Obama speaking or that is really Donald Trump speaking. The, the fact that this technology is already out there, I think can have significant ramifications for the music industry as well, just with regards to rights. So, okay, one one example, this might be bouncing around a little bit, but in the world of smart speakers, which will continue to grow this year, I think there's a, there's a lot of conversation about how to create music listening experiences that are tailored to smart speakers. And, and part of the hypothesis around that is just to give an example, like Ariana Grande, say you want to listen to her album that just came out and you want to find out more information about it. You can have Ariana Grande herself recording specific podcast episodes, audio recordings, et cetera, that can be played on demand from, you know, an Amazon Echo speaker given the right command. But there also is technology out there that technically can allow anyone to upload a recording of Ariana Grande speaking and then type whatever they want into like a, a, a text box and then have Ariana Grande's voice say any of those words. Mm. And the, the, the technology is still in its early stages. It's definitely not perfect, but it's, it's closer than I think a lot of people realize. So speaking of the law not being prepared to deal with technological advancements, I feel like as of yet, there, there really is nothing that equips us with tools to deal with this kind of infringement on, on people's public image or just like copying, yeah, like copying people's image and people's voices outright. So yeah, that, that's something that, that I've been following, which requires definitely looking outside of the music industry and looking at what's happening in a political world on a global level. But yeah. Wow. Well, that's a really scary note to end on, but we're out of time. <laughs> so Sherry Hu, thank you so much for being with us again on The Future of What? Thank you. Happy to be here.
mastered the truth never spoken as never traveled the rules never broken go around in circles go to nowhere That was Last Chance County by Filthy Friends. If you're enjoying this program, please subscribe to our show on your favorite podcast platform and leave us a review. Follow us on Twitter at KRSFOW and subscribe to our newsletter to find out what's coming up next. You're listening to The Future of What. I'm talking to John Chapman. John, welcome to The Future of What. Thanks for having me. So today on this episode, we are talking about trends in the music industry for 2019. And so I wanted to talk to you about an article that you wrote called How the EP Killed the LP Star, which is interesting. I mean, I certainly, I think you're right in a lot of ways, but it's funny because I've, you know, I've run a record label, we've been around 27 years, I've been doing this 12 years, and it was always this sort of golden rule in record labels that you would dissuade artists from doing EP if they could do an LP because it actually costs the same to market an EP as it does an LP. So we always wanted more songs rather than fewer songs to market if we were going to spend the budget. And now it seems like technology has really changed the marketplace in a significant way. Yeah, I mean, I think it's across the board with everything, you know, the immediacy of everything. You know, just looking at social media with Instagram and Facebook and we need everything right now and we need it in small doses. Right, (laughs) right. That does seem to be the message in terms of, you know, like we're living in short attention span theater. So everybody, you know, you just have to like barrage people with stuff. Right. The part that's interesting for me, though, is, well, there's there's two aspects that are interesting. I mean, in your article, you, you mentioned that Cheryl Crow has said she's not going to do full lengths anymore. And some of their sort of big stars are, are putting out EPs rather than LPs. But I have yet to meet a young artist that doesn't want to do a full LP. Like, so from the artist side, people still want to do it. Yeah, it's true. It's usually like if they do put out the EP, it's always they're working toward the LP. Right. You know? Right. I mean, listen, for me, just as a a music lover, you know, there's just something about a full-length record as opposed to an EP. Like, there's just, there's something magical about it. Yeah. Even if the record sucks, (laughs) you know, there's just something about it and maybe, you know, just growing up in a world where that was it, you know, like the new record is coming out, the new album is coming out. You know, I, I don't know anyone who's like, oh my God, they have a new EP dropping. Right, like, right. you know, I mean, even to this day, I don't think anyone's like, oh my God, the new EP is dropping. It's just like, right. Oh, they have an EP dropping on Friday. You know, it's, yeah. I mean, do you know anybody who's been like that? Like, no. There's a new EP no. dropping on Friday. <laughs> no, definitely not. But it's funny because it's sort of at odds with the marketplace in a weird way because I feel like a lot of the ways that people consume music nowadays really is a singles focused right. consumption right. model, right? It's the next single. So on one level, it would be arguable, right? That it's like, does it matter if that single came off an EP or an LP? Well, probably not. It's just 
that it's the next single. I mean, my question to you would be, well, why are we even bothering with EPs? Why not just have artists record singles? True. I think some artists are actually just dropping singles with no intention of releasing anything. You know, maybe the EP or the LP is down the road, but they just want to get in and record anything. I think that's where we're going. Unfortunate, but like, I think that's where we're going, where it's like, we have music let's just release it you know i don't know if we'll ever get to a point where like you know paul mccartney is going into the studio to record one song (laughs) but if we do that will be a very sad day right or anybody any artist but like it's true i mean it's very irrelevant now you know with you know streaming i mean the beauty of streaming obviously is that you get everything that you could ever dream of you know at your fingertips if i want to listen to okay computer i could literally listen to it anytime i want anywhere i want and if there's a new single i can you know same thing but you're right we kind of live in a world right now where there's really no difference between releasing an ep releasing four singles over the span of six months versus releasing an ep on a random friday there's really unfortunately no difference right You know, except for like, well, it would be great to get something immediate that I can listen to right away instead of just playing the same song out, you know? Yeah, I guess the way to to think about it is to think about it from the back end. So from the back end, the way it always made sense before is if you have an artist going into the studio and you're paying for studio time and you're paying for an engineer and a producer, you want to pay for a certain block of time. And, you know, that's when we're doing this, you know, we're, we're recording as many songs as we can or however many songs we want to in this time period and we're paying for it. And then also, also from the record label perspective, the marketing plan. If you have an album, you have something to hang the singles on. You know, you, you're paying for press, you're paying for marketing, you're paying for everything. You have, release a few singles and then you put out this album. And the album is basically supposed to be where you make the money back right. for all of this money that you've put in up front for the studio time and the producer and the engineer and the marketing and production and everything. The interesting thing is that since technology has changed, people can do, you know, they do home recording or they have studios in their house or they have a different kind of a relationship where going into a studio is not that hard. Yeah. So maybe they can do that fairly frequently. I think the big difference for music companies, whether that's a label or or an artist themselves, is just how do you make money just releasing singles? Do you know what I mean? There's one artist that I'm thinking of and she's probably, you know, not making money right now, but she released four singles gradually. She's probably unsigned, but she's getting airplay on Sirius XMU. And there's so many artists like that. Her name's Chloe Lila, and I really like her, and she sounds great. And she might not be signed, but, you know, in, in time, she's going to get signed just by following this because, you know, she recorded it, probably do-it-yourself kind of thing. And Sirius XMU plays her a couple of times. That'll lead to some kind of deal. And then, like, the, the whole idea, I think, now is you go into the studio, you're going to make an LP or an EP. We'll see what happens kind of thing. And you're going to make your money touring. <laughs> you know, I think that's where the money comes from. And not from any rock artists either. <laughs> you know, it's, it's not a great example, but I think that's the whole idea. Like, I, I know a lot of artists. I kind of vicariously live through them since I have no musical ability at all. But... <laughs> The the whole thing is that you ask them, are you making a full length or, or an LP? 
before they go into the studio. And nine times out of 10, you get, we're hoping for a full length, but we'll see what happens. We may just take the best of what we got. Yeah, but I think it is interesting from a monetizing perspective because it does it mean that even big record labels are throwing so much of their belief into streaming that they're willing to sort of overlook the possibility of paydays in other areas because putting the onus on touring and saying an artist has to make their money from touring that makes it tough yeah because that that's another business that's been going through a lot of transition lately and and i think a lot of artists are reporting that it's harder and harder to make money on the road so where are artists supposed to get paid yeah i was gonna say i think overall it's it just as an artist i think it's harder and harder to get paid period i don't think there's a correlation between like we're only going to give you four songs because we're not we're getting paid crappy anyway. <laughs> but like, yeah, it's a good point about where do the artists make money and, you know, at what point do the labels actually step in and be like, you know, we're going to put all our dollars behind X. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, it's, a, it's an important question because if we can't make money selling records and we can't make money selling singles. <laughs> That's the whole thing, really. I mean, the entire system is broken. So like, it's just a matter of figuring out whatever the hell. I blame Rihanna for everything. I'm kidding. <laughs> you blame Rihanna? She has so many great singles. So, like, I, anytime I think of Rihanna, I think of just like single after single after single after single. She didn't need the albums, but. Oh, that's funny. You are talking about sort of the heart of the matter because artists are signed based on albums. You know, when, when an artist gets a record deal, back in the old day, it was like a seven album deal with a major, you know, indies do one-offs, maybe two or three records. And now I think even the majors are being pushed into signing shorter and shorter deals, but they're always in terms of albums. And I mean, at least historically, that's been true. So isn't that interesting? That's the singles that drive, you know, maybe the singles that drive it, but it's albums that finance it. I mean, I'm kind of hoping that, you know, everything's cyclical in everything. I know Vampire Weekend's going to release a double album at some point. It would be nice if it changed, you know? Like, I mean, I know that vinyl, I don't want to say vinyl is big again, because then I'm going to sound like a dork, because <laughs> vinyl really, you know, it's kind of like mustaches are back. But like, I'm hoping that it kind of starts to trend in the reverse way. And singles are singles. And if you want to release them in advance, that's fine. I think I mentioned this in the article, like Beck released Dreams a full year before Colors came out. Now, whether he intended for Dreams to be on his album, I don't know. But like, that's what I'm used to. I'm used to like you coming out with not a full year difference, but like I'm, I'm used to like you coming out with a single, giving us a taste and oh my God, when's the album coming out? So like Vampire Weekend releases two singles, in one day and after the album, it'll probably be out in a couple of months or, or a month or two. And like, that gets me excited because that's old school. And I'm kind of hoping that that's what it is because I think we're losing something by like, oh, they dropped a new single. And then it's kind of like your next immediate thing is not when is the new EP coming out? It's like, oh, that must mean they're going on the road again. Or like when's their music video dropping? Like Bon Iver is touring this summer and I have no idea why, because the last album was two or three years ago. And I'm like, really curious. Is Justin putting out new music? Or is this just kind of like a random thing? Or like, you know, so I kind of like that. Like, I like some kind of mystery. Like, I don't like, yeah, we have a single coming out and, you know, look for an EP soon. 
which is basically every single artist in the world doing that. Right. But that's a good point because usually when people tour, they tour on some kind of release. Like they've got something for people to pick up at the merch table. They've got something to be currently playing on the radio while they're on the road. You know, it's a whole package deal. Like we call it an album cycle for a reason in this business, you know? Right. I think it all went downhill when the release dates went from Tuesday to Friday. Yeah, we can blame that. Let's blame that. I'm 100% with you. <laughs> like, I think that's when we kind of sort of lost everything. Like, that was a thing. You know, new album out on Tuesday, and now it's like Friday, and it's like, there's nothing on Friday, you know? And like, even like Record Store Day is like, it's usually like a two-song thing, you know what I'm saying? Like that people release. It's not like a full album or anything, or, or you know, yeah, it's like a retread or something. But like, right? Did I get a full album on Record Store Day? That'd be pretty. Cool. <laughs> well, John Chapman, thank you so much for being with me today on the Future of What. No, it's my pleasure. Have a great one. That was Girl Germs by Bratmobile. You're listening to The Future of What. After the show, take a moment to leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. It helps people find the show, and we love hearing from you. When Kill Rockstars was looking for someone to take over our fulfillment operation, Merch Table stepped up to do the heavy lifting, moving our entire stock to their warehouse and helping us create merch our fans love. With Merch Table's support, we've been able to focus on the music and artists that matter to us. KRS loves Merch Table. See what they can do for your business at merchtable.com. You're listening to The Future of What. I'm talking to Eric Muller. Eric, welcome to The Future of What. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm happy to talk to you. So let's talk about Pirates Press. I mean, obviously you guys press records. (laughs) Indeed. (laughs) 
our main business is manufacturing records, CDs, DVDs, merch, all of the above. Basically anything an independent label or band would need to like hype their stuff. And vinyls climbed right alongside the growth of the company since 2004 when we started. And we've really always prided ourselves on the vinyl component of our business just because we're all vinyl nerds and love awesome packaging and cool colored vinyl and picture discs and all that kind of crazy stuff that we really specialize in. So it's been kind of fun having vinyl grow right alongside the company and you know they go hand in hand too like we've done a lot in terms of trying to get people to think a certain way about collecting records and what's important in collecting records and making nice packages and stuff like that well yeah you guys are absolutely right with the zeitgeist because if the company started in 2004 i took over kill rock stars in 2006 yeah it was right around 2002 that we were really not doing vinyl for certain releases. And then after I took over a couple of years later, we started doing vinyl again. And that, I feel like you guys were just like right there in the midst of that resurgence. Definitely. And a year into starting the manufacturing company, we could see it and we could see it in all the scenes, including the punk stuff that we were all into. So we decided to start a label like a year in as well. So we could press some records for ourselves and in many ways used it as like an advertising arm of the company to kind of show off the cool stuff that we could do. But quickly we kind of saw that there was like a market for it and like now we take it a little bit more seriously and put a little bit more thought and effort into each of the releases trying to play the game so to speak in terms of like promoting an album properly rather than just pressing some records and throwing it out on a website which a lot of people do these days totally well you started out by saying that you know everything an independent label could want or an independent artist could want so does that mean you guys don't work with major labels no, we definitely do. We we work with all of the major labels, in fact. At the end of the day, though, the reason why we're such a strong company is that our average orders are a lot smaller than almost every other manufacturer out there who are relying on those bigger major labels to kind of pay the bills. The major labels come to us mostly for specialty stuff, so high-end packaging or colored vinyl that we only offer, picture discs, things like that. But it's really grown. Like, I, I remember last time I heard, which was maybe two years ago, was like 23 pressing plants in the U.S. now. I mean, it's really grown. Yeah, it's kind of crazy. So how has that changed the marketplace for you guys? I mean, the fact that so many more people are getting in, into the business that you guys are in. There's plenty of people who want to work with local companies. And I think that's a vast majority of where these new factories are getting some of their business and because people want to see their record be made or pick it up at the factory and those kind of things and i think that's really cool and it's good for vinyl but ultimately it doesn't equate to the numbers that are needed to really change things in vinyl like for millions and millions more units to be made it's going to take a while for those factories to actually ramp things up and be you know, full to the gills pressing records every day on multiple presses. I mean, a lot of those factories only have two or three presses and they're not running 24 hours a day. So the um, how many presses do you guys have? We have 38 double headed presses at the moment. Whoa. So like 76 lines, you know what I mean? Like if we have a good year, we could probably hit 50 million records. Next. Good Lord. And they, and they run 24 hours a day. They run intermittently at 24 hours a day or three shifts when wow. we're really busy. We try and keep things to like two shifts most of the time because it, one of the biggest challenges we have is staffing, period. We have 2,000 employees at our factory. Wow. 
So it's really difficult, not only just to find people, but to find people who are qualified to do it. A pressing engineer, a pressing operator, the person who's actually pressing the records is not just a assembly line kind of job. They're doing a really high level quality control action as they pull those records off the press because good pressing operators can notice a problem almost immediately. And a negligent press operator wouldn't notice it for 300 units until a copy makes its way into a quality control room where somebody's listening to it through a set of headphones. So there's a huge advantage to having quality press operators. And it's really tough to find the balance and to find enough people who could man that number of presses for like three shifts a day and be sustainable. So we can turn up the gas when we need to, but ultimately we're trying to like balance the growth and keep up with what our customers you know, need and stuff like that. Right. I've spoken to people who run pressing plants before on this show. And and I think one of the coolest things about it, like you were saying, you guys employ 2000 people in the factory is just that, you know, when people think about the economics of the record business, they don't necessarily think about the people who will get employed actually creating records like the vinyl itself or the CDs or the cassettes. And that's a pretty interesting facet of this as far as I'm concerned, because, you know, it's like you guys are a job creation engine in addition to just creating product. It's actually very interesting, the economics of it, like you said, in the sense that there's all these smaller factories opening up that are creating jobs, and it remains to be seen how many of them will be sustainable. I know some of the factories are only really employing like three or four people, and then other people are in the teens, and then some of them are in the 40s and 50s. Those are more healthy investments, if you will, in the future, but I don't know how much investment will be made in the future on new pressing facilities and stuff, just because, like you said, there are a lot of new factories right now, and there hasn't been big stories on the financial successes of any of them yet. Right. In terms of them returning on their investments and reinvesting profits and things like that. It's all hypotheticals. That's true. We can't always trust what's in the news because talking to you, it sounds like you have a pretty rosy vision of how vinyl's going. And, you know, if you read the news, then every other day there's a story about how vinyl's on its way out. This boom was just a bubble and it's going to burst. No one's ever going to buy vinyl again. What do you think about that? (laughs) The manufacturing segment of our business is something we're really confident in because regardless of whether or not a particular record sells well or trends in vinyl do a little bit better or a little bit less, at the end of the day, there's always going to be our client base wanting to make records. There's a ton of people who run their labels as like a sideline hobby and have normal jobs. Those people are always going to want to have their label. It's a sense of their identity and who they are. And we're not relying on Warner's sales or Sony's sales or Universal's sales to keep the doors open. We're talking about making 500 records at a time that are sold, you know, 10 at a time at gigs or over mail order, things like that. And that segment of the vinyl business is growing rapidly. You have a lot of people realizing that it's an easy return on the investment to make 500 records if you're playing shows 10 days a month. Wow. You know what I mean? And That's really where our confidence and our rosy vision lies. If you want to talk about the whole business and the whole format as a whole and incorporate the major label sales, you know, that's a totally different story. You've got major labels that are pressing lots and lots of back catalog, kind of guessing what's going to sell or what's not. 
And a lot of the stores that have invested in starting to carry vinyl again are really major label heavy, trying to get people to buy a Taylor Swift record there. Whereas those stores might have only carried like the new Epitaph releases 10 years prior or five years prior. So it's really interesting. I mean, we've had so many titles that come through from major labels where we're like, how on earth are you pressing this many copies of this record and why? Who's going to buy them? Right. And like a lot of the decision making that happens at major labels is something that somebody running an independent label who like does count their nickels and dimes just couldn't fathom. You know what I mean? Like the new record for, I mean, this is probably 10 years ago now, but I remember pressing the new album for My Chemical Romance and thinking about the fact that the amount of money they're spending to manufacture all of the physical copies on vinyl and the amount of potential income that they could make from it is probably less than like two of the TV commercials that they paid for. <laughs> so it was such a tiny fragment of right. it. And in the major label world right now, it still kind of is. Right. Like the reason that they can support those huge rock star major label artists is because of digital money, placing stuff in TV and video games and movies and stuff like that. And really like hoarding the market. It's really tough for independent bands to really get into that and make money, real money, like career money. But the major labels are able to do it in kind of like a quid pro quo way, so to speak, that like they're getting the good stuff and they're supporting the upcoming bands as well. And all of the money is really kind of kept in a few different circles. And the vinyl is a small component. It's the artists who will always want to see vinyl on their merch table. Like everybody in their 20s and 30s right now, or even 40s, 50s are all vinyl geeks, you know, and like the world has kind of gotten there. And so you have all these musicians and all these artists who love vinyl. So they want to see their records on vinyl. And I know for Warner at one point, that was a big driving force in why they started making like collectible vinyl versions of things for a while. Was, you know, you had bands that really wanted to see it. And that's kind of the, always been the case in like punk and metal. Like you couldn't be in a punk band or a metal band and put out a record and not put out vinyl. Like you would feel like the album didn't actually come out. There's something about having to have that physical record to make it seem legitimate. And I think a lot of people feel that way just in general. And spending your $10 a month on Spotify or Apple Music will get you all the audio and all the music that you want. But people still feel a connection to their music by collecting a physical product. And vinyl fills that role. And I don't think that's going anywhere soon. That sentiment's not going anywhere soon. Like the industry may ebb and flow depending on who decides to spend millions of dollars pressing which records and throwing them at the masses. But like overall, vinyl is here to stay. Well, on that note, perfect ending point. Eric Muller from Pirates Press, thanks so much for being with me today on The Future of What? Happy to be here and contribute. Thank you very much for having me. Hear me out I've been losing all the time Out of love As if the misery were designed Cast a spell Only curse Through the hex That's behaving like a curse Is the reason
was The Hex by Horsefeathers. Also, check out our short podcast series about Bratmobile's potty mouth. It's called Girl Germs, and you can get it wherever you get your podcasts. And that's our show. The music we played today was used by permission. You heard Filthy Friends, Bratmobile, Horsefeathers, and of course, our theme song, Mind Your Own Business by the Delta Five. Subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review. For more info on our shows, check out our website at killrockstars.com slash thefutureofwhat and sign up for our newsletter. Our program was engineered by Brent Asbury at Beta Petrol and is produced by Will Watts and Anna McLean. I'm Portia Sabin, president of Kill Rockstars. See you next week. <laughs>